With snow squalls in New York City today and Arctic temperatures across most of the Midwest, this week's most useful fact comes from a Popular Mechanics article about removing ice from your car. First, try smacking the hood and the trunk with the palm of your hand to break up any thin ice sheets. But don't use anything harder or you might create a dent. Check the exhaust pipe and the radiator grill to make sure they're clear, then start the car and let it warm up with the front and rear defrosters and the headlights on. Winter-grade windshield washer fluid will help you melt ice from the windows, but don't turn the wipers on until they're free, so you don't damage the motor. Finally, do not pour boiling water on the windows, because the heat differential could crack them. Today's episode has a ton of useful information to distract you from the cold outside. We talked to David Weglars of Still 630 in St. Louis about his booze library and building cocktails you'll love to drink. We also convened the ultimate popular mechanics DIY panel to explain the phenomenon of popcorn ceilings. Field editor James Lynch tests some winter coats, and we collect quarterback facts. Pour yourself a hot toddy and put another log on the fire, y'all. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to a freezing edition of the most useful podcast ever. We have with us on today's podcast David Weglars, who is the owner of Still 630 in St. Louis. It's a distillery, but it also has a botanical library, so it's kind of a cool place, and he knows a lot about spirits. So (laughs) welcome to the podcast, David. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So we have so many questions. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like we heard about this from one of our regular contributors to the magazine. She's like our spirits contributor. And she mentioned that she found out about you and told us all these things about like an experimental spirits program and a botanical library. And I was like, that sounds like Yeah, I saw a picture of like a bunch of apothecary bottles of slightly different formulations of whiskey, I think. That's exactly what we were going for. And (laughs) we have all of them displayed. It'll be even more impressive. Right now, we've only got about 1,500 up here. Only? only? That's so <laughs> what are you many. going for? There's no real target. We pull samples from different barrels at different periods of aging. It allows us to kind of watch the spirit evolve in the barrel and compare future batches to older batches for consistency. So I kind of assume that's going to continue to grow. And with the experimental spirits program that we're doing, that's definitely making it grow because we pull spirits every month from those barrels, and there's a whole bunch of them going, as you can imagine, so that's swelling. Not to mention our botanical library, which is a portion of that wing of the library there, and we're a little over 212, I think, right now. Wow. So that's just different things that have been infused? Yeah, they're all different kind of botanical ingredients, right? Different roots, fruits, herbs, leaves, seeds, flowers, berries, peppers, nuts, etc. You name it, it's kind of in there. And we pick our neutral spirits, We infuse the flavor in there for about a day, and then we distill it off. So it turns it into a kind of gin-esque spirit. But juniper is only in the juniper samples, of which we have several different kinds. But the other ones are just, I guess, distilled flavor-infused spirit. But each bottle is its own unique flavor. You know, we like to call them different colors to paint with. Right, like a single note kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And then when you blend them together, you get a beautiful song. (laughs) Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> that's really cool. like you and Jackie were working together on that one. <laughs> yeah. It, um, well, it's funny. I actually, for a story for this magazine, I met with a perfumer one time who was like an independent perfumer, and he had worked for this company called Demeter, where he made single-note fragrances that were things like grass and dirt, and all. The, and he got very, a tomato, and got very famous for doing that, and that's kind of how he did it. He, he had, you have like a single-note library of all this stuff. Yes, exactly, yes. So that's crazy that somebody's actually doing it with booze. Where did you get the idea to do that? Well, it was kind of when I got my eyes open to this uh, gin. So I started the distillery because I wanted to make whiskey and rum. Those are my two passions, and I really like them. I wasn't much into 
gin and I had some bad experiences of vodka as a younger drinker. So I didn't like that and didn't really want to make it. But a couple of years in, as my skill and palate had grown as a distiller, I got kind of shown the spectrum of what gin could be. And the idea just really kind of took hold of the, the artist side of me, if you want to get fancy. But the idea that we could get all kinds of different flavors in here, and then I could literally build the gin that I wanted to make and drink. And so it just made sense to me innately that the more flavors you have, the more colors you have to paint with or notes you have for your symphony. Are there certain things that have to be in it for it to be a gin? Gin is predominantly has notes of juniper, juniper berries. That gives it kind of that like pine, fresh, Mm -hmm. cooling note that gin is typically known for. But that's about it. So it's a very loose definition. There are a couple of different categories of gin from Geneva to Old Tom Gin to Contemporary or London Dry Styles. Those are different styles, I guess. But we kind of live more in the American contemporary eyeball side of it. So they're juniper forward, but they've got many other notes and very complex notes to make totally unique spirits. And did you get the idea for the whiskey for the other distillery libraries based on this, or did this come after? So we've been pulling samples just in-house kind of for the whiskey and, and rums and brandies and stuff, kind of from the beginning. But okay. we made it an intentional effort when and displaying it as such kind of crystallized in our head when we started doing the gins and things. So that's where we started putting in the shelves, and it keeps growing and growing. That's so cool. Yeah. One question we wanted to ask is, if let's pick a spirit. Let's say I want to find my favorite whiskey. <sighs> what are some elements that I need to know if I'm going to do that. You know, if I'm going to figure out, am I, do I like bourbons that are mostly rye or do I like ryes that are just plain rye or do I like scotch whiskey or how do I figure out what notes to even pay attention to? That's a, maybe a more difficult question. It, it might have seemed, I guess, because there's no wrong way to do it, right? Uh-huh. I mean, what I encourage people to do is go tour a local distillery, try some of their different spirits. You're talking to the people that make them and they can lead you through a guided tasting. Like if you were to come into my distillery here and I was showing you around, we have six different whiskeys on the bar right now. And that is two of them are rye. One of them is a coffee-infused whiskey. We got a bourbon. We have a weird brewery collaboration. There's all different styles in there. So what you want to do is sample some stuff. Don't go to the liquor store and start buying bottles at random because you're going to run out of money real quick. It's <laughs> <laughs> an expensive proposition. If you have a friend that has a good collection of spirits, they probably are collecting it for a reason and could help guide you through it, give you some examples. What you want to do is taste different examples of the different spirits and start from the top down. So, you know, here's a bourbon versus scotch. Those are different. So determine which way you would rather go before you start nerding it out about which of the Highland varieties you prefer over the Islays and what are differences there. You know, you want to get to the big category and then start to see Examples, well, let's say you went bourbon, like you suggested. Now you can try the different, once you know what bourbon is and kind of you get that, then you can start to drill down a little further and see what a rye-heavy bourbon is compared to a more of a weeded bourbon. And you might have a preference there. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Are there certain dimensions that you think about, especially when you're pulling all these samples, kind of like broad categories, like how much heat is sort of expressed when you drink it or levels of smokiness? Are there certain like big categories that you can use when you think about different whiskeys? Absolutely. And I mean, we pay attention a lot to the nose, you know, how it smells in your glass and sits there before you even have shipped it. 
I personally am not very big on color of it because if you're using different barrels, you can manipulate that. You can chip it. It's just, it's not necessarily a great barometer of quality. It's neat to look at and it's pretty, but it doesn't rate very high on my personal scale. But the nose is one thing we look at. We look at how it hits your tongue, where it hits it on your palate. You know, what flavors come out initially, what kind of happens in the mid palate. And then as you're swallowing and the flavors are kind of receding, what is that lingering finish that you're left with? What is the overall impression there? So we're looking at many different aspects of it. And what we really want is a nice, well-rounded, cohesive spirit. It can smell great, but it also has to be backed up by a nice initial taste that has to carry on throughout. Sometimes on immature whiskeys, you'll get notes that peak real quick and then just disappear, and they don't carry through. Or you smell it on the nose, but you don't get it at all on the palate. Or it's it's good, but then there's a lingering finish that just kind of doesn't sit right with you, you know, a couple minutes later. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced anything like that, but these are all things that we're concerned with and, and are trying to think about. Right. What about like the thickness? You know, like the mouthfeel and that kind mouthfeel, of thing. Mouthfeel, viscosity is something that's, that is very important. And it all kind of blends in proportion with those things. Okay. You could accept a little bit more of a mouthfeel, a little bit more thickness maybe, if, depending on what spirit you're trying to do. I'm looking for a little bit different notes when I'm looking at a, a cast strength, a barrel strength spirit, meaning it's the same proof it was in the barrel, it's uncut, undiluted, than I am with if I'm looking to make, you know, an 80 proof rum or something like that, you know? Typically, the higher the proof, the higher the concentration, the more compact and intense those flavors and that experience is. Okay. This is Peter trying to make it very personal, as I tend to do. <laughs> so I always make Manhattans for people. And people say, oh, this is good. That just means whatever bourbon that I bought that time tastes good. Is there a fun twist that you can do on a classic drink like that? Should I be using a young bourbon or try something that would work well with the um, vermouth With the vermouth that would complement <laughs> it? Right. Well, you know, one way to easily class that up, actually, is to change the vermouth you're using. Yeah. A lot of people look at it as just a side, you know, cheap mixer that you want to put to throw in there. But a good vermouth, you know any cocktail is only as good as the ingredients you're using in it, right? right? And I would also say, if you're going to make a Manhattan, do it right and use rye whiskey instead right. of bourbon. But that's, you know, just a little bit different there. If you had a, used everything else, but you had a bourbon Manhattan and a rye Manhattan, that might be a good way to introduce people to that aren't very familiar with it. Because most people find it somewhat challenging to go from not drinking a lot of spirits to drinking them straight and neat, right. you know? So cocktails are a very nice gateway to get them into the idea of some of the flavors on the palate and a good drink like that will have complementary or similar flavors to the spirit itself. Since we were talking about vermouth, how important is it to put that in the fridge? You want to refrigerate it after opening? Because I never did. Was I putting people in I've danger? I've never done that either. Potentially, <laughs> yeah. Personally, I don't think it's a huge deal, but you know, it might extend the life a little bit longer. Yeah. I just, that was one of those things I had no idea was supposed to be refrigerated. And then I actually looked at the bottle one day and I was like, oh, I've been doing this wrong for 10 years. I didn't know that either. alcohol, but not a ton. Another thing you could do that's a lot of fun, I think, is to experiment around with different bitters. You can get all kinds of bitters now out there, which are basically high proof extracts of very concentrated flavors. And just a couple drops or a dash or so of lavender bitters will make it taste totally different than. Leather and hide bitters that you have out there. That'll show through a, a boozy oh, rye time. or something? Yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. 
I always assume bitters are just something you squeeze in because it looks kind of cool and nobody really notices the flavor. <laughs> Who's drinking these Manhattans you're making? I know. It's <laughs> the only like, thing on offer. It's like, I'm, surprised, I'm surprised anyone even comes over to Peter's house anywhere. They're like, you know, yeah. he makes those weird Manhattans. I picked one that looked, the label looked nice on the bitters and I think <laughs> maybe it's orange or something. Well, so David, I'm curious when you mentioned, you know, drinking some of these spirits straight up, like I, I tend to like drinking whiskey neat, but I'm curious, you know, I've heard all kinds of different advice about ice cubes or whiskey stones or a few drops of water and then, you know, different glassware. Like, how much does that stuff matter? What's your advice? My advice on that is it matters as much as you care. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the truth, though, because I make my spirits to be enjoyed. And I go out of my way to tell people it's totally up to you how you enjoy them. You know, if you want to drink them neat, that's great. If you want to put it in an ice cube or water, that's fantastic. If you want to dump, you know, a gallon of Mountain Dew in there, well, then you probably should buy two bottles, shouldn't you? But the point is, it does make a difference. But not everybody is approaching it with the same goal, which is to really fully appreciate and nerd out and get the most out of it. Some people just want to drink already, right? Forget about, put the bitters away, Peter, and just pour it for me. Okay? <laughs> but the glassware, for example, we went through about 10 to 15 different little glasses and cups and stuff where we were looking for what we wanted to use in our tasting room. And there's several more on the market today that weren't there then, like the Norland glass and the meat glass and stuff like that. We use Glencairn glasses in our distillery with that classic iconic tulip shape. I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah. with those, but we use those because when I poured the same whiskey into all these different cups, the nose was a little bit more present and palatable. The, the whole experience was heightened a little bit. But again, if you're not looking to appreciate the nose and the body and let, how it lingers on your palate and such, then maybe you don't care that much about your glass. You just need a vessel to get it from the bottle to your mouth. And in some cases, you don't even need that. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. How much longer does it take you to drink a glass of whiskey than the average person? Do you like chew everything and smell everything and are you there for three hours? I probably take longer to enjoy each sip, but I take bigger sips. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we drink a lot of barrel strength stuff first thing in the morning when we're to when we have a clean palate. Right. Oh, that's the reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Starts the day off great too. But you want that clean, consistent palate because if you've been eating something different for breakfast burrito, is is going you're gonna have a different palate than if you ate just a cup of coffee and some eggs or or whatnot. You know. So for consistency, we do it then. So I'm very used and adept at drinking high-proof stuff. So I do sit there and enjoy it and appreciate it, though. Every, most people I drink with, their friends anyway, are just, you know, swallowing it as soon as it's in their mouth. Right. So. Yeah. After all of this testing, what's your opinion on gin? Do you have, like, flavors in gin that you've decided you really like? I am really enamored with gin. I really love it. I love the creativity available in it. I have certain flavors that I enjoy better than others, but we're intentionally, like, We've got two gins out now, and I'm working on the third, like literally as we speak. I'm weighing out some different botanicals and stuff. But they're intentionally made with different flavor profiles. I didn't want to make two versions of almost the same thing. There's so many different botanicals out there that wanted to make different stuff. Uh, so I guess my answer is that I really enjoy seeing what a distiller has put together as that song. Okay. All the different notes they pull together. So I like a lot of different kinds of songs. That's right. good. That, <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, I was like, that's good. I mean, it, it sounded like before you, you kind of were, in, you know, not super excited about gin. So it sounds like you've come to a different place. 
I've reached a much, much deeper and real appreciation for it. And I look at it as an expression of that distiller's taste profile. And I've, I've tasted a lot of gins that didn't blow me away, didn't really do much for me, that I didn't necessarily need to have again. And then there's some out there that are like, I have to have a bottle of that at home, you know? But it could be totally different than the bottle sitting next to it on my shelf. Right. So it's, I'm not necessarily a stickler for certain flavors, although I do have some that I like. Awesome. Well, thank you, David. And if you're listening yeah. and you want to check out some of the expressions that David has come up with, check out Still 630. That's uh, from St. Louis. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for being on our podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, David. We really, thanks. really appreciate you. Hi, is this Joe Torini? Speaking. Hey, this is Jackie from Popular Mechanics. It's hey, nice Jackie, to meet how you. Are you. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Awesome. We have Roy Berenson here. Oh, no. Berenzano. Roy Berenzano. <laughs> That's what you get for lax security. Don't <laughs> <laughs> let anybody in here, Ben, Joe. you let me in. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> not a, not me, anymore. Don't give me some idea what's going on down there. <laughs> How you doing, Roy? Good, Joe. Oh, my gosh. And uh, we also have Kevin Dupsick here, who is another producer and host of the podcast. I'm sorry, who's that? It's Kevin Dupsick. I think you and I oh, might, hi, have, might have spoken like years ago because uh, I work on the shop notes page. I think you helped me oh, out okay. with them once. Yeah, I may. I've been, I first started working and writing for Popular Mechanics in 1983. So very few people I have not met or written for. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah. <laughs> Wait, which one of you has been here longer? Well, I've been here longer continuously, but Joe, right. Joe, go- first. yeah, Joe, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. I was going to say this is like the Masters of the Universe call for Popular Mechanics yeah. right here, like the DIY Masters of the Universe. Well, I was working at PM, and then a position opened, and they hired Roy, and then we only worked together for a short period of time. Then Roy left to take another job, and then Traitor. when I left a few years later. They rehired Roy. Oh, so interesting. Come and gone. And then when I became a freelancer in 2000, I started working with Roy as a freelancer, you know, from 2000 until, I don't know, a few years ago, I guess I stopped writing for you guys. That's amazing. Well, this question is probably too easy. Like what we were going to talk about today is probably too easy for the two of you. It was just that the, both of you have written about it recently. And so about I thought. Popcorn ceilings? It's popcorn ceilings, yeah. 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 The, the yeah. notorious. Yeah, well, uh, I, we still, I get questions. I work on a TV show, and my host, the TV show, also has a weekly radio show that I co-host. And we get calls about popcorn ceiling, emails about popcorn ceilings, like well, at least two or three times a month. That's great. Really Did you have one growing up, Jackie? telling them the same thing over and over again. So, yeah, we, we answer this question. I don't know who's still spraying popcorn ceilings, but people obviously don't like them. That was the question that Kevin had. Yeah. Was like Because, yes, I, to answer your question, Kevin, I had yes, one I did have one. You were wondering why they still have put them in? If they do. And, and why they put them in the first place. What was the appeal of this? Because well, it's they're, really they're hard to understand. They're inexpensive and they're acoustic. I mean, they're, uh... they're essentially acoustic because they're supposed to absorb sound. But they're cheap to put in. You don't have to put up sheetrock and tape and, and finish all those joints and all that sand. They just spray the stuff on. It doesn't take any particular skill once you learn how to spray it. So, I mean, <laughs> that's the reason. Yeah, they put, uh, well, at least up here, they do what's called the, the same level of taping they do in a garage. It's called a fire, right. fire yeah, tape. Yeah, it's like the very first, yeah. they just tape the joints, but they don't finish the drywall. You know, they don't, oh. you know, it's not two or three coats of, of joint compound feathered out and then primed and painted. Yeah. So, I mean, the simple answer is that it's inexpensive and the builders don't live there, right? They just come in <laughs> and they go home. Gets right to the heart of the matter. Yeah. Yeah. To me, it's kind of like wallpaper. We never get a call on the radio station of, 
how to put up wallpaper. How do I put up popcorn ceiling? It's always how to get out of it. How do I get rid of popcorn? <laughs> how do I get rid of wallpaper, you know? I'm glad I didn't invest any money in popcorn ceilings and wallpaper because no one seems to like them very much. Uh, yep. So how thick is a popcorn ceiling when you're going to take it down? You said there's no drywall. I mean, I always thought it was just like a surface layer, but is it? It is. Oh, it is? Okay. With drywall behind it. Oh, so it does have drywall behind it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, it's, they would have to be really thick. That's, what, that's what I thought. I was like, <laughs> what the heck? They'd fill up all that space between the ceiling joints. No, it's just sheetrock, and then they spray this stuff. Like Roy said, they tape the joints with paper, but they leave it like that. They spray right over. When you spray it, is it just in like some kind of adhesive, like goo or something that yeah. you're? Yeah. Huh. It's basically, yeah. Huh. Just spray it up there. I don't know why anybody thought this would be nice. It's pretty easy to do because it's not very precise, right? It's not like you're getting a fine paint finish. I mean, just, I mean, like anything else, you could do it wrong. But I think it's pretty easy to master. It's not a highly skilled trade. Let's put it that way. So let's say you're going to take this down. Is that a highly skilled trade? Nope. Oh, good. <laughs> so we don't, we don't require both. Do I was like, we don't require the both of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. Joe, I'm, I'm going for a cup of coffee. I'll come back. <laughs> I mean, it's tedious. Of course, it's like most jobs like that. It depends on are you talking about a whole house or are you talking about a room? If you're talking about a room, it's pretty easy. If it's doing a whole house, it's still relatively easy, but it's just tedious because it's all hand scraping for the most part, right? So Yeah, so talk us through yeah, it. Yeah, what do you do? What would you use? All right. Well, there are a couple of things you need to know ahead of time that we could talk about. I don't know if Roy has mentioned this, but popcorn ceiling, it's called popcorn texture, but the popcorn texture prior to about 1970 or so might contain asbestos. Mm. So, you know, we always have to warn people, especially in print, that, you know, if you think or if you're not sure, scrape a little off the ceiling, you know, wear a dust mask and gloves, scrape a little off the ceiling into a Ziploc bag. Send it off to a lab. Make sure it doesn't contain asbestos because, you know, we don't want people fooling around with that because yeah. you know, that could get, you know, that's serious stuff. That if you're breathing in asbestos stuff. Yeah. So, so let's assume it's not asbestos. And, okay, so what do you do? You can dry scrape it, meaning just scrape it, but it's a mess. You know, I mean, it's just, it's popcorn ceiling is pretty hard. It's stuck to the ceiling. You don't want to damage the sheetrock above it because then you have a, they have another job, right? You're going to patch the sheetrock that's all gouged up. So the thing to do is you soak it down. And the way most people tell you is you get, get a pump-up garden sprayer, fill it with water. Sometimes they say put in some uh, liquid soap detergent and you spray it on the ceiling. And what that <laughs> does is it softens it up. You know, it absorbs the water, gets soft, that makes it easier to scrape it off. But what I've found is a little trick is instead of using detergent, use fabric softener. Oh. Get liquid fabric softener. Usually you need like a three-gallon, I usually recommend a three-gallon pump sprayer because it's big enough that you can usually do a couple of rooms, but it's not so big that it's hard to carry around. You don't want a one-gallon pump sprayer because you'd be refilling the thing every five minutes. But anyway, so you get like a three or to five-gallon pump sprayer. I usually recommend a three-gallon. Put in hot water, hot tap water, and about a quarter cup of liquid fabric softener. What the fabric softener does, it prevents the um, water from evaporating so quickly because you want it to be up there as long as possible, right, to stay wet because it... It'll soften up the... Oh, uh, How'd right. you figure that out? Texture. I read about it one time and I tried it. I don't know where I saw it. Probably Roy Berenson. We'll say it, it was okay. in Popular Mechanics. <laughs> yeah, I think Roy told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think so, Joe. That, <laughs> During one of those brief, lucid moments that we shared together, <laughs> when both of us were thinking clearly. I don't really remember. That's like an old trick. It probably came from the pros. And how anybody came up with that, God only knows. But I had tried it and I know a few people have and it works great. So what you do is you spray the whole ceiling, you wait 10 minutes, and you spray it again. It usually takes two applications of the water. And you wait another 10 minutes, and then you start scraping. Now, 
Most popcorn ceilings are just sprayed on right out of a gun. The guy walks out the door and that's it. Occasionally, someone will paint it. And that creates a problem wow. in that the paint will prevent the water from soaking in. And then you've got a whole separate issue. Now, that is pretty rare. Most people don't paint popcorn ceilings. I'm trying to imagine a painted point, popcorn you know? I mean, ceiling. That seems ugly. Yeah, because yeah. most ceilings are white anyway, and there's no point really painting it. But occasionally, if you find it's painted, then the water probably won't really work, and your only option is probably dry scraping, which is, at that point, I would just live with the popcorn. Oh, really? Oh, I would. So it's my house. You know, assuming that's not falling off the roof. So the, the dry the scraping is that onerous. That's how bad it is. Yeah. I mean, if it's falling off the ceiling, I guess you have to. But I would, to try to dry scrape like a whole house, you might as well just call a realtor to sell the damn thing and find it. <laughs> <laughs> I, that mean, I mean, that's I, a... I wouldn't dry scrape a whole house because I think it would just be way too much work. Wow. Yeah, it's a nasty job. Yeah, for sure. If it's not painted, and like I said, I would say maybe 95% of them are not painted, then you can scrape it. Now, ordinarily... You can just scrape it with a six-inch or eight-inch drywall knife, and if that's what you want to use, fine. You keep it at a really shallow angle so you don't gouge the ceiling, and I've also recommended you take the knife and you put it on a bench grinder and take off the sharp corners, the two sharp corners, so you're not gouging. Because, you know, again, you're scraping this, and any time you cut into the drywall, that's like another repair you got to make, and so you can really avoid that if you're careful. But there's a tool they often recommend, if you're doing more than a room, that HOMAX, it's a company called H-O-M-A-X. And I think it's simply called a popcorn ceiling scraper or whatever. And it's essentially just a 12-inch wide blade, right? So it's, it's a lot wider, so you can go a lot faster. It's affixed to a handle that has a threaded knob on it that you can put in an extension handle. I've used broom handles. Almost anything fits into the threaded handle. And this way, you, can, you don't need to work off a ladder. But the really cool thing about this is around the 12-inch blade, it has like a, um, a rectangular metal frame that you can clip on a plastic bag. And when you scrape the ceiling, almost all that sloppy junk falls right into the bag. Oh, that's great. Some of it will fall off, but I, I bet it catches 90 or 95% of the popcorn. And then I wouldn't wait till the bag's full because not only is it heavy, but the plastic might rip. And if it rips, then, you know, they got that stuff flying all over the house. A huge glop of it on yeah. the floor. Yeah, I usually say you scrape those about the bag's half full and then either empty the bag or just replace it. And I've recommended that to a few different people and, and every single person has called me and said, thank God for that. I don't know what I would have done without it. So Nice. But I think it's like $13 at Home Depot or Amazon or whatever. So it's pretty affordable. And you might not ever use it for anything else, but I tell you, it's great for that. You know, it's designed for it. And it really makes the job so much easier. And it's 12 inches wide. So you can do a room pretty quickly once the popcorn texture has softened up a bit. Yeah, I was going to say, so for, for you guys, for the pros here, you can probably do this pretty quickly. For me or Jackie or somebody who hasn't done this before, like one room, is that I, like a half, a half a day's no, work? I've never done this before. I, I'm just pretty certain. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's usually some hand scraping where the 12-inch blade doesn't fit or near a wall where, you know, maybe you can't quite get right to the wall. So there's a little bit of hand scraping at the end. But I don't know, Roy, what would you say, a 10 by 12 bedroom? I mean, it, sometimes it takes more time to move the furniture yeah, I was gonna or say, to scrape. The, Usually right. I recommend putting, even though this bag catches most of it, you really need to put drop cloths on the floor. Sometimes I recommend, depending on how particular you are, to tape, use um, painter's tape and put plastic sheeting on the walls because you don't want it falling off the ceiling and sticking to the walls and you got to clean the walls. So it might take longer just to prep. But I would say once you're prepped, ready to scrape, and after you've sprayed the ceiling and waited the 20 minutes or so in total, I don't know, it might take half hour or 45 minutes to scrape it. If you're not using a ladder, if you're using a ladder, obviously it's going to take almost twice as long because you're up, up and down and moving, up and down and moving. So I don't know, maybe 
45 minutes an hour. Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing that people have to understand is that if you want the ceiling to come out looking right, yeah. well, you've got the prep before the scraping. You've got to gather your tool, get all that stuff. Yep. you got the scraping, then you've got the cleanup, but then you've got, I'm assuming, somebody, there will be a little bit of touch-up on that ceiling. There's probably, probably gonna, a little, yeah. Yeah, there's probably going to be a little bit of, they use, as Joe correctly pointed out, they shoot these ceilings without properly finishing nail heads and screw heads and the seams themselves. So there's going to be a little bit of, like, if you want that ceiling to look nice, you've got a little bit of drywall finishing ahead of you. Yep. Then the ceiling needs to be primed. And then painted. Right. Because don't forget, the, the whole goal of this is this person wants a painted ceiling. You know, yeah. It's a flat painted ceiling. Now, the other thing, which probably isn't really worth mentioning because we're talking about scraping popcorn, but a lot of people say, you know what? I'm just going to have a sheetrocker come in and just go right over everything with quarter-inch sheetrock. I don't even bother scraping. Oh, interesting. But then you're really starting from scratch. It's like, okay, now it's like a brand-new sheetrock job. Now you've got a lot of taping and mudding and sanding and, you know, got three or four layers of that to go on, and then priming and painting. So that's a lot of work. And I'm not really sure why somebody would do it as opposed to scraping. I, I can't imagine that. It takes less time. And it certainly would cost more because most people can't sheetrock a ceiling of a whole house by themselves. You know, be working on your back or up on top of a ladder, that's yeah. no fun, even if it's only quarter-inch sheetrock, yeah. which is relatively lightweight. So, I mean, that's your only other option, which is why people are like, well, I'm not doing that. How, how can I scrape it off the ceiling? And this is how you can do it. You know, wet it down and... Just start scraping. Yeah. You know what would be funny is if you put up sheetrock to cover the popcorn ceiling and then you realize how expensive it was going to be and you're like, well, let's just put up some popcorn. <laughs> yeah, just keep putting up sheetrock and popcorn <laughs> until you have a six-foot ceiling. You just have like a layer cake. <laughs> I'm sure there's houses popcorn. out there that have that. <laughs> I, just, I was just surprised that Homax didn't call it like the Orville Redenbacher model. That's probably got to be copyrighted. Yeah, well, he's, he's dead. <laughs> he might not mind. The memorial, the, he the probably Redenbacher Memorial point. Scraper. <laughs> well, while I've got the two of you here, um, what is oh. the coolest thing that each of you has learned in the course of your millions of years? Low these many years. Yeah. Low these many yeah, years. What, what would you, I mean, if there's one thing you were like, oh man, that was just so useful or cool, what would you say it is? The first thing I think of, Roy and I both were around and working long before there were cordless tools, and you just can't even imagine what it was like. Oh. You know, like before there were yeah. cordless oh, tools. Like, yeah. yeah, like the first cordless tool was yeah. just yeah. like a crazy and, and thing. the advancements, I mean, the lithium-ion battery just, I mean, it shot it into like the stratosphere. I mean, I still have some old NICAD nickel-cadmium batteries on some of these tools. And I don't even use them anymore. They're like so big and heavy and they have hardly any power. And the lithium-ions are just, it's like going from a actual horse to a Ferrari. You know, like yeah, what yeah. the heck happened? <laughs> There was that, but also, Joe, when the, the saw stop table saw was introduced. And this is when this guy put his finger in it? Well, he, they used a he hot, used dog. hot dog. Uh. They used a hot dog. And people were standing around and just, you know, everybody, the press corps, people walking by, and just yeah. uh, literally, you could not see it and not be astonished. I mean, of course, they've limited the market because if people are buying table saws to cut hot dogs, this thing would be useless. Cause yeah, yeah, no, that's, <laughs> they, they wrote off the hot dog. Every time dog, it gets but, near a hot dog, the damn thing stops. It's kind of like Roy. He sees a hot dog, he just stops. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Well, kibasa is even worse. Forget it. <laughs> dogs and brownies, that's all Roy's ever eaten over here. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is awesome. Uh, this is the greatest DIY Masters of the Universe podcast segment I think we've ever yeah. had. So thank you, Joe, oh, for calling in. Welcome. Yeah, call anytime. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Roy, too. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.
It's time again for your favorite segment, Quarterback Facts. Okay, so I need you guys to know <laughs> something about me as a person. I thought you were going to... You, you don't this, know you the normally sport sound games? way more excited than this. Yeah. <laughs> I know and care very little about football. Okay. So when I was doing the research... So you're going to be like, so the quarterback throws the ball. Well, it's... So it, did you know there's a halfback and a yeah. fullback? It's it's more like when I was looking for these facts, like I don't have a good gauge of what is interesting to a person who cares about football. Let okay. me just put it that way. Okay. Well, my first fact is about the first Super Bowl halftime. Oh, good. 1967. It's the first Super Bowl. I don't think they had called it the Super Bowl yet. I think that took a couple of years to come into being. But they had two marching bands, an acclaimed trumpeter, and two jetpack pilots. Wow. These guys they had jetpacks then? Okay. So let me tell you about this. It was Bell Labs, which was Bell Air Systems at the time, I think was trying to trial a jetpack as like a military device. Never got there. I don't think it was practical. Very but, Iron Man. Right. But they had these prototypes, which basically was you strapped three tanks onto your back and two of them had hydrogen peroxide and one of them had pressurized liquid nitrogen. This sounds no, so dangerous. So safe. So dangerous. And basically when they were all combined, like a bunch of steam was let off and it like zoomed you into the air for like 20 seconds. Wow. And you get up a couple of stories. So there were these two guys and it was the AFL the American Football League yeah. and the NFL, which, you know, was yeah. dominant. They each had a suit, once at AFL and once at NFL, because those were the two contenders in the first Super Bowl. And they jetpacked. And that's like, like they jetpacked up high and not like, at each other? I think they took off from opposite ends of the field and then like... Like whoever doesn't blow up. Right. Wins. <laughs> yeah. And then they like twirled around. Everyone was like, it's a flying man. And then they landed. <laughs> and then that wasn't enough. The 60s sound fun. They released yeah. 300 pigeons and 10,000 balloons. Whoa. So that's, I would watch that. Do you do the well, balloons first or the pigeons first, do you think? I feel like you'd have to do the pigeons first. So yeah, because the pigeons otherwise out. would hit balloons and, right? I'm just wondering, like, would they just not take off? Would they easily dodge all the balloons and we're just being, I'm just being crazy thinking about this? I don't know. Although we fell into your trap, which is you've made this jetpack facts instead of quarterback facts. <laughs> which it rhymes, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I do have some more football facts. Quarterback facts? Quarterback facts. Oh, this is a good one. John Heisman of the Heisman Trophy fame, he basically invented the snap. <laughs> that's, is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah okay. well, yeah. assuming, assuming, assuming that's that what you you're mean. talking about, what we think you are. Yeah, so yeah. basically, he was working with a quarterback who was six foot four, and so it was too inefficient for him to pick the football up off the ground. So he invented the center snap as a way to get the ball into his hands. Oh. And that was in like... That's pretty good. I, I like, like that, that one. That's early one. Yeah. yeah, I like it. He also apparently was a very weird dude. I found this quote from Heisman describing a football itself, and he called it a prolate spheroid, an elongated sphere, in which the outer leather casing is drawn tightly over a somewhat smaller rubber tubing. Better to have died as a small boy than to fumble this football. <laughs> wow imagine having him as a coach i mean you'd be like well, football makes can't men can't you just say things like you know get it in the end zone or something <laughs> be like better that you had died as a child than drop this ball especially yeah, if you he, after all that spheroid i know business. he dropped all the geek speak to make sure the stakes were clear yeah. <laughs> yeah also okay this one was cool too the football huddle was basically invented in the 1890s by a group of deaf football players and it was a way for them to like they huddled and then talked in hand signals oh, so and it was the huddle was so no one else could see it uh -huh. and so that was like the late 1800s and it sort of took off in the early 1900s 
Are there any more quarterback facts? No. <laughs> I'll tell one legendary quarterback story. Ooh. Because I think this might be the anniversary of Were this Were you happening. a quarterback? No. Oh. But you um, played football. Yeah, and I'd watched a lot of football. Okay. So, like, maybe this guy just died, actually. I just saw a story about this. So, the, like, one of the most famous plays in the NFL playoffs, I'm pretty sure it was not a Super Bowl, it's called the catch. Joe Montana, famous quarterback, threw the pass, and their tight end, like, caught it. It was a really hard catch, and it, like, won the game right at the end. But one of the famous things is that in the huddle, because, like, your quarterback, like, if you need somebody who's a leader who can manage the team, expectations, not just, like, I can throw the ball into the plays. You're also, like, the guy who has to keep their cool. In the huddle before that play, which was like, we go home from the playoffs if we don't win. In the huddle, Joe Montana's like giving the plays and everybody's like pressure cooker. And then he goes, is that John Candy in the stands? Because John <laughs> Candy is sitting in the stands and then snap and then win the game. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe John Candy was good luck. Of course. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. Hopefully and it's right. I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> And that's been Quarterback Facts. Quarterback Facts. One for the books. Enjoy the, <laughs> enjoy the Super Bowl. So we have James Lynch on the phone. James Lynch is our field editor. And you are out at Outdoor Retailer right now, which is a huge event that they do every year to show off the next new hot things in outdoor gear. Where exactly is Outdoor Retailer? Yeah, so I'm in the convention center here in Denver. And yeah, just like you said, it's where everyone shows the latest and greatest, newest thing for the outdoor world, gear, soft goods, hard goods. This one is their snow show, so it's a lot of winter jackets and snowboards, skis, and things like that. And there's a summer show as well, and that's, you know, a lot more. You're hiking boots and stoves and backpacking, stuff like that. Okay. Do they do them actually? I mean, I know how Fashion Week is, like, in advance or whatever, but it's winter right now, so this is the winter show. Is the summer show is just in the middle of the summer? Yeah. I mean, a lot of stuff will be things that are coming out, for the next season as well, so we have like sneak peek at the stuff and as well oh, okay. stuff that's out right now. So it's a good mix of things that are, are coming to the market, already on the market. You know, there is, depending on where you live, you know, a couple more months of winter, so there's still plenty of time to get some cold weather stuff in. That is true. Can I say, I'm imagining right now you're in like a corridor in like a tent that's just set up in the middle of the corridor and you just like snuck in there to do a phone call. That's what I'm imagining. That's probably not true, but that's what I'm imagining. I'm on a staircase, but I am like right next to this crazy overlanding rig with like huge tires and like tents on top of it. So <laughs> That's awesome. Kind of how it goes. Yeah. So part of the reason we're calling this is our testing table and you have been testing a lot. You're currently testing a lot, but you've been testing winter coats. You live in Vermont and are currently in Denver. What are the winter coats that you're most excited about right now? Yeah, I mean, it's a bunch of stuff. It also really depends on what you need. One of my go-to winter favorites has been since I was a kid. It's just a good Carhartt, you know, a really good tough jacket that can deal with just about anything. You throw it at, you know, if you slip on the ice, you're not going to tear it open. You get real with a snowball, you're going to be fine. <laughs> I really like their duck-quilted flannel-lined active jack. It's actually made in the USA, which is awesome. Uh, it's got some great flannel lining, and it is insulated, so it's really warm. And it's got those good Carhartt cuffs on the wrist and around the waist, which I always like. Also, it's a hood if you're into that. I wasn't always a hood guy, but, you know, I've been changing and I've been enjoying it. Oh, yeah? And like I said, it's in the U.S. and it's only $110. It'll last you forever. Oh. Wait, what did you have against hoods? I don't know. Like, it, my problem with hoods is if you're not wearing them, they fill up with whatever's falling. So, oh, you know, interesting. it's really deep snow on your hood. And then you, know, you then you go to put the hood on and then now it's you have snow on your back. That's my issue with hoods. But okay. since I'm uh, a long-haired creative type now, I like the hood because it doesn't mess up my hair. So, you know, that's the truth. <laughs> That's awesome. Carhartt, I mean, this has been like your long-standing favorite. Is there anything new, like new technology that you're into? Yeah, there's a bunch of, uh, I mean, parkas and down jackets are big. There's some I love. Some of the crazy technology that we're starting to see more and more 
stuff called aerogel. Okay. And it was actually developed by NASA as an insulator. And it's basically they take gel and, like, knock all the moisture out of it. So it becomes this, like, air-based gel that's 97%, something close to that air. It's, mm-hmm. like, nothing. Mm-hmm. And there's this company, Oros. O-R-O-S. Okay. You know, aerogel is cool. People don't really know what to do with it. But Oros has created something called uh, Solar Core. And it's this really warm, uh, like, malleable layer they put inside their jackets. And they claim it's 70% warm with 200% less bulk. Now, this is new. I haven't got my hands on this guy yet. I'm excited to check it out. You see the same tech in uh, outdoor research uses a similar tech, aerogel, in their Bitter Blaze ice climbing gloves. So, you know, the possibilities of this lightweight insulator are pretty big. And once you see if our heavy coats for winter get thinner and thinner in the years to come, as we'll figure out how to use that material more effectively and, and at a good price point. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. I have a Columbia jacket that is uh, surprisingly warm for how thin it is. And I've had it for years, but I mean, it's just amazing the stuff that they can do because it's warmer than coats I have that are twice the size. Do you actually try coats out when you're out at Outdoor Retailer? We'll see coats, and then basically people will send me stuff to try if that's what they want to do. Okay, so you don't actually, like, put one on and go run outside and just run around? Not so much, no. Okay. No. I remember when we were talking earlier, you said that you've been trying a bunch of coats lately. Have any of those caught your fancy? Yeah, I mean, Down is also still a killer insulator, and there's some really cool stuff with Down. I've become such a fan of Lululemon. Everything they make is great. Really? Yeah. I mean, everything they make is just so well thought out. Okay. Their Cold City Parka is a nice down jacket. It's actually on sale right now for $399, which is a 30% off or something like that. Right. I mean, it's expensive, but you get quality out of their stuff. Like they have, ski jackets have a snow skirt, so you don't get, so it's like tight around your waist, even though the coat goes past your waist, and mm-hmm. the snow doesn't shoot up in you. Mm-hmm. And this park has like a wind skirt. It's not hardcore as a snow skirt, but it's like if you're in a city, you get a nice city breeze, you're not going to have cold air shooting up oh, to your stomach, your chest area. That's Same nice. Same thing with the cuffs and even around the neck. So you're really sealed into this nice, really warm down jacket. Right. And it's waterproof. That sounds great. I'm actually intrigued. I'm gonna, when is that one out? Is that one out already? That one's out. That one's been out. Like I said, if you're looking for a late season deal, it's a great one. They're going to redesign the coat next year, but this year's great. Honestly, with how they make stuff, I'm sure next year's will be great as well. Right. Another really cool one, though, is the Topo Designs Mountain Jacket. I really like Topo Designs. They have this really cool, boxy, pockety look. And they're making this jacket with Primaloft Black Eco insulation. So it's actually a synthetic down, but it's made out of 100% recycled plastics. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's got that like good synthetic down feeling. So the jacket's waterproof, but synthetic down will also keep you warm even if it's wet. So you're like kind of doubly safe there. And uh, it's not too heavy. It's got a really fun feel. You get some bright poppy colors. They do really good accent colors. I really like the look of their stuff, and it fits your look. I mean, it's a great jacket. Super warm, great hood. Like I said, waterproof. Feel good about their insulation. Right. Awesome. I mean, thank you for taking the time out, hanging out by your cool 4x4 four four or whatever you're hanging out by with the tent back. Absolutely. Uh, to talk to us about this. Normally, I end this by saying, would you buy this? But you are testing so many. I guess I would say, what winter coat are you wearing or what winter coat do you wish you were wearing right now? Oh, man. I mean, I'm doing a lot of traveling right now, so it's hard to go with a parka. But if I am at home and I'm going anywhere, like a good parka that covers your legs and your butt is like, in my life, I did not see a lot of men's coats. And now that I've switched to that, I love a good parka. So, you know, I'd probably grab that Lululemon parka. Awesome. But traveling with it is tough because it's very bulky. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you and uh, have a good time. Go ice climbing for me. Oh, yeah. Thank (laughs) you very much. I'll uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye. That's our show, y'all. 
The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Bettina Warshaw and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. And while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks, projects, science, and technology, check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.